Okay, so in something new. Might not preach for a little bit after this. I got the baby coming, so I'm excited to preach. And uh, been really thinking about this this text for a while since we. If you guys, well, maybe you don't. I don't want to make the pastors in here feel bad, but we did a little short thing in Hebrews where we all preached through it. I actually forgot, so I wouldn't blame you if you did too. Well, we did one in Hebrews, and uh, as I was studying for that, I had thought about doing something um, in Hebrews and continuing on the train of thought in there, so that's kind of what I'm going to pick up on today. going to really be picking up on uh, these first two verses, but uh, they're, they're, they're kind of going to be like a launch into something. I'm not going to go super uh, detailed, exegetical, word by word in these, in these couple of verses, but I do think... Um, I will pull out a point in here that I feel like I have missed uh, very often reading these verses here. And uh, I really want to bring it out to bear for us because I think it has what Manny prayed for at the beginning. I think this has a word for every single buddy in here, but it might be a little bit different for everybody in here exactly what that word is. So, um, But it, to, to, just to kind of get the flow of what's going on right here. So... When I did preach this, when you get to the end of Hebrews 11, right there, you just get through this great charge, right? This great hall of faith, as has often been called. And um, you really get this charge of, right there at the end, it says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And brethren, we, we really emphasized in the, in the point is, they're commended for their faith, but they didn't receive the promise how much more then ought you be commended in faith and to strive after faith for people who have received the promises? That's the whole emphasis there. God has provided something better for you. Now have faith. You need to strive. You need to continue in faith. And uh, brethren, because the whole point of Hebrews is without endurance and faith, <laughs> you're, you're not going to make it to the end. That's just the point. Without endurance in the Christian life, you won't make it. Guaranteed you won't make it. Won't make it to the end. But church, our, our desire for you is that you would. Our, our desire is you would make it to the end. That you'd make it to the end of your race. You'd receive the prize. And I was, I was just thinking of how many times Paul says that over and over and over again in the New Testament. When he talks about running the race, he says something like this. And you should want to echo these words that Paul echoes. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 7. And then, brethren, you want to be able to tell other people these words. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6, 12. But then I was thinking about one in Acts that Paul gives. It's, it's similar, but there's a little extra added on to this. And I want us to be able to say this along with Paul. Not only that we would run well, not only that you'd be a good example of how to run well, but brethren, you'd be able to say like Paul what his aim in running well was for. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And 
Brethren, that is the secret to the sauce right there. Paul, he, he's, he, why does he count his life as nothing? Why does he run the race as to win a prize? Why does he commend other people to fight the good fight of faith? Brethren, it's because his aim is sure. His life has one goal, one trajectory, one aim, and that is to testify in his life to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brethren, and that is how you will run well. That's how you'll finish the race well in this life. And the one whom imitation will be worth imitating is the one who says, I have one singular aim. That's to chase after the gospel of God's grace. And yet Hebrews gives us one thing right here that I want us to focus on. There is one great roadblock in this race of faith, and that's this. It's that of shame. There's a roadblock that we hit here in this race of faith, as Hebrews says it right there. As we run, we ought to run with endurance because we have a roadblock put up in our way in the Christian life, and that is shame. And if you look back at those verses right there, you'll realize this is the main emphasis of which Christ endured through, right? In Christ, what he endured was shame. Out of all the things that the author could have talked about Christ enduring in his ministry, he says he went to the cross despising the shame. There was a roadblock in Jesus' way. It was shame. And Jesus looked at it and he loathed it, he despised it, and he still went to the cross because he had what before his eyes? The joy set before him. And brethren, the same thing is with you. You ought to have one thing before your eyes. That's to testify in your life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brethren, as Paul talks about, Jesus was this preeminent race runner. You want to know how to, how, how to run the race well? Brethren, you look at Jesus. He's your example. He's the one you ought to look to as if Christ ran the race well, and then I am told to fight the good fight and run the race as to receive the prize, then you better pay attention to the stumbling block that was put in Christ's way to trip him up on the way to the cross. And it was shame. So, brethren, we also need to realize that this ought to, one, this ought to encourage you. You, you, ought to, you ought to remember how the gospel talks to us about how we deal with shame. And it ought to encourage you. It ought to exhort you. It ought to remind you of the beauties of the gospel. And yet, it also ought to warn you and exhort you that if you don't despise the shame, brethren, shame has a way of twisting and distorting and making Christians run out of the race. Brother, this is now our great task as we and the Lord Jesus and Paul and now ours, our task is to run well. And you, in order to do that, brethren, you need to do this. You need to despise the shame. Or put it in another way, you need to learn how Jesus did. You need to shame shame. And that's what this is going to be about. So I'm going to have two points. I want to talk about shame a little bit, and then I want to talk about how I think it's fitting here in Hebrews and how we can, we can be encouraged in this. So the, the real question is, the, 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 the shaming of shame, or how does shame shame? That seems, <laughs> it's kind of choppy, but I want you to think of, when you think of shame, almost like we're personifying it. And the question would be, does, how does shame shame somebody? How does that happen? And uh, we can kind of look at this, I think, two polar opposite ways right here. So first, there, there's a way in which we talk about shame, and shame is, it can be a good thing. It's something that 
testifies to your need uh, of something to be dealt with, right? So shame testifies to our need that something needs to be dealt with, and, and your shame is kind of sitting there as like, a, as like a red light indicator that you need to deal with something. And we know that David says here in Psalm 25, he says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Brethren, listen to that. Why would David cry that out in the psalm? Why does David say, Lord, do not let me be put to shame? And the reason is, is that David knows that only the wicked live and die in their shame. If you bear shame, not good, right? Shame is warning you, something is coming for me. And if I die in my shame, that's bad. Right? And so David's like, Lord, do not let me be put to shame. You come. You exult over my enemies. But brethren, also David knows is the reason he can say that is because people deserve it. And that's something I think we forget about that too. When, when people are dealing with shame because it's testifying to wickedness and it's testifying to evil, and then David says, don't let me be put to shame, Lord. Don't let me be put to shame. It's because he also knows that the person sitting in that shame because of that wickedness and that evil deserves to feel the shame. Brethren, wickedness is sin and shameful thing, and it produces shame all the more. Here's 1 Corinthians 15. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. Listen, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul knows if you don't wake up from your stupor, if you don't come out into the light, if the sinning does not cease, brethren, it'll be towards your shame, and rightfully so. And brethren, this is how shame shames. It, it, it looks to the sin, the, the thing that's done. It looks to the wickedness. It looks to the evil. It looks to the guilt. It, it looks to the shameful thing you did. And what, what does it do? It points a big shameful finger at you, and it shames you. And I know you've all felt that in here. You all sinners saved by grace, right? You know the feeling of shame, or you at least ought to as a Christian. And you know what it's like to be exposed for what you are. And brethren, it may have been in front of a lot of people, and it may have been in your room with the doors locked, and it was between you and God. And yet God exposed you for what you are. And brethren, it's like, it's like the stripping away of everything that you pieced together of who you thought you are. It's like ripping the cover off of you and just leaving you out there bare and naked for everybody to see. And while that sounds really bad, brethren, in one sense, this is a good thing. This is why the gospel then becomes good news. The gospel is not a gospel of shame, but the gospel is something that comes and addresses our shame, right? It tells us, listen, you have shame, there's freedom. There's freedom from your shame. There's remedy from shame. And Jesus suffers shame and mockery on the cross. Right? So that's good news for us. So you go on and you read an account like Mark's, and you read right there at the end, and what's happening when Jesus is being put up on the cross? He is being shamed all the day long. They're mocking Him. Oh, if you're Elijah, why don't you call God, and, and He'll bring you down off that cross. Oh, look at it. It's the King of the Jews. Look at Him now. Got a crown of thorns on His head. Look at that guy up there. 
Brethren, you realize that Christ suffers at the revile and shame of others. But Scripture, brethren, listen. Scripture goes on to tell us he was not just receiving the insults of men. Christ, though Christ does, Christ was not the great philanthropist that got put up on a cross and just people said bad things about him. Right? More is going on as he's nailed up to that cross. Brethren, we realize he's not just receiving insults from men. We know that principalities and powers are insulting the Son of God as he is hanging upon there, upon that cross. But we know, brethren, that those same powers that made those insults, the ones that held sway over here, here's what Jesus did to them. It's Colossians 2. And you, you, all you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Brethren, do you remember the shame now? Do you remember the guilt? Can you conjure up the feeling again of being awakened to the reality you were guilty before God and not just legally, but you had a mountain of shame upon your back. Shameful things that you did. Shameful things that you said. Shameful things that you did to others and shaming them. Brethren, can you feel that weight again? And then you hear the gospel words afresh at time and it says he canceled all of it. But you know what else he did for you? He says this, this record of debt, your mountain of shame, he sets aside. He nails it to the cross. He kills the shame, brethren. He kills the debt. He kills the sin for you. And then look what he does to the people who shamed you, who pointed fingers at you, who held chains over you. He disarmed. Brethren, he disarmed the rulers. What weapon? Did he take their guns? <laughs> did he take their swords? No, brethren, he took the accusing words out of their mouths that were right about you. And they're now gone, confiscated, never to be seen or heard from again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And you know how Christ puts them to open shame? By triumphing over them in him. Brethren, he shames them by saying, your words are now shameful words over my people. They're shameful things to say. They're a disgrace. They're loathsome. They're evil. And I have disarmed them. Brethren, that is good news for you. The powers of darkness held sway over you. They had real chains over you. And they held them tight. Brethren, you know what they said in accusing you? No freedom. Why? No freedom. Why? Because you had chains. Shame. No peace. Why? Brethren, you had chains. No hope. Why? You had chains. You had guilt. You had shame. And yet God sent forth Christ, brethren, who bore shame, who bore our shame, spit on, reviled, hated, mocked, and he shamed all of it. He shamed it. He shamed all of it. All the shame he received, he shamed it back. He disarmed them. He took the very thing that they had against him and against you, brethren, and he disarmed it. But you know how Christ disarms it, brethren? Because you think, but I really deserve that shame. Brethren, Christ deserved none of it. 
You look at the gospel logic. God can now tell you, you don't deserve the shame anymore. The, the weapons of their warfare have now been disarmed. They are not a threat to you anymore. Why? Because the one whom they ultimately shamed could not be shamed. And he can make now shameful people those who are unashamed. Brethren, in Christ, what shamed, what shamed you is now obsolete. And this is why you need to follow in Christ's example when it says he despised the shame. Brethren, you despise it. You loathe it. Shame, brethren, it's nailed to the cross. And the people of God say, Amen. Let it be so. Well, brethren, listen, shame cuts the other way too. I want you to be encouraged by that. that. That is gospel logic right there. How can you be a shameless people? Christ bore shame for His people. But listen, brethren, this cuts both ways. Without the gospel, shame is powerless to save you. It's, it, it's like the law. The law is good, but the law has a use, and the shame has a use. But brethren, shame by itself saves nobody. Yes, it may expose sin, it may expose guilt, it may expose wrongdoing, but shame alone, brethren, you don't want shame alone. Shame alone is not a good thing. If shame is simply ripping off the sheet to expose you, then all shame does, brethren, is leave you naked and bare. And Christ does not do that. Christ clothes you, but shame leaves you naked and bare, only to receive reproach from men and from God. So, brethren, listen, shame alone is no friend. And this is where it cuts. And, and, and you're going to see how this world operates in with shame. I mean, look out at the world. How does the world operate with shame? It does two things. People in the world, people who have no hope, it does two things. It either destroys somebody or, brethren, it corrupts somebody. It will destroy somebody or it will corrupt somebody. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Shame is either going to destroy you, eat at you, until you have no relief given and then you're done. You can't bear the weight of your shame anymore. It'll eat you alive. It'll leave you in misery. It'll leave you powerless and helpless with no hope. Our brethren, shame will utterly corrupt you and make you the kind of man or woman that the Bible says calls good evil and evil good. And I think we know this first one pretty simple. Here's a couple verses. Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't want to be destroyed. He doesn't want the shame to come upon him. And then, and then, he's, and then he's lost. He's destroyed. It's another one. Make them bear their guilt. O God, let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Psalm 510. Brethren, sin, sin and the shame that it produces is a weight. Brethren, it is a massive weight of guilt. And left with that weight, it will, it will crush you. Brethren, you ever met people like this? You ever tried talking with somebody? and you bring up the fact that they're a sinner before God, and they already, they know the guilt and the shame that they walk around with. They don't know what to do with it. They got no remedy for it. I mean, brethren, people do crazy things and fall into deep despair when they know that there are shameful things that they've done, and they have no way of escape. It is like how David describes it. Don't let me fall into my shame. I'll have no way out, God. In fact, let the wicked fall into their shame. Why? Because if you let them fall, they'll be judged. 
Brother, that's a judgment without hope. Left with that weight, it's going to crush somebody. But listen, brethren, that one seems simple enough. But the, but the one that I want us to focus on, the second one, I think is right here in Hebrews. And that's this, shame can deceive and corrupt you. And sin, as we know, brethren, it hardens the heart. And when the heart grows hardened, it begins to embrace the very thing that it should be ashamed of, right? You grow hard towards God, you will begin to embrace the things that God calls evil and start to hate the things that God calls good. And this is just the fact that when you have shame, brethren, listen, when men have shame, when women have shame, there is, there is no such thing as just sweeping shame under the rug. Your heart is not a hiding place for shame. You can just say, oh, I got a little bit of guilt and shame. I'll just tuck it away and I'll forget all about it. Brethren, it doesn't work like that. We say no neutrality. There's no neutral ground for shame. Shame finds its way into something. And brethren, what people do who are not driven into misery... This is what happens to the other group of people. People who don't do are not pushed into misery because they see no hope. These people find no hiding place because they embrace their shame. Isaiah 5:20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Another one. For many of whom I have often told you, this is Paul speaking now, and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Brethren, here, listen. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Philippians 3, 18 through 19. Here's another one. Proverbs 2, 13 to 14. These fools in Proverbs who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Another one. These, Jude speaking of these false brethren coming in, these pseudo-Adelphoi coming in, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Last one, 1 Peter 4, 3-4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And now here, here's what they do with the shame that they should feel from those things. With respect to this, rather than right, they are surprised. Listen, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Brethren, that's the end game of shame. The end of shame without the gospel, without Christ, without any gospel logic, flipping shame on its head for you, is it, it's going to end in two ways. It's going to end in misery, and it's going to, eat, or it's going to end in you becoming corrupted and twisted and being a lover of evil. And brethren, listen, listen. I know we sit in here, we see the same faces over and over again. But we, have we not had a few people leave from here? Brethren, what happened? But did, the pro, like, did, programming, did, did the programming go out? I mean, what happened? Brethren, this happened. Not bearing and feeling the weight of sin and running to the cross 
and two things happen. The weight of someone's sin just crushes them. Or brethren, it, it turns them into all sorts of sin that we don't even know. It, it, it absolutely twists them. And brethren, that, that, that's because shame is a byproduct of sin. And when sin, it distorts, it twists, it corrupts, it deceives. It's irrational. It's like a beast. Brethren, we need to be aware of this. This is exactly the thing that Hebrews warns us about right here. The Christian then, listen. The Christian who does not run the race with endurance. Brethren, please. This can happen. You can and will be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin and shame. This is the very thing that was happening to these Christians. These Christians, the same thing happened to them. And brethren, we need to... We don't tell you to do this very often, but you need to jump straight into their shoes right here and put yourself in the text. This can happen to you. Brethren, it is, just even thinking of the prayer request today, brethren, it is how many times in a few years now I have heard men who were in ministry who seemed to be upright men devoured by sin, devoured by shame and guilt because they did not go to the cross to deal with their sin and their shame and their guilt. We need to beware of this, brethren. This was happening to the Christians right after the Lord Jesus ascended. These Christians, brethren, they're being mocked. Go back and read Hebrews. They're being mocked. They're being persecuted. Uh, all these stories of early on, you accepted the plundering of your houses and your goods. I mean, brethren, these people were devastated. This was a devastated community. They embraced the Messiah, and everything went bad for them. Everything turned bad for them. They're losing everything. Respectability, their physical goods, they're being called heretics. They're being told that, that, that this Jesus, this, that this Messiah guy, was hung on a tree and cursed by God. Brethren, they're being told by their own Jewish brethren, <laughs> you guys are a shame because you follow a shameful man. Think about that. Their logic, they're looking at Jesus and them and they're going, you follow a shameful man. You are a shame. Come back. That man was cursed by God. And so brethren, the question is, are they going to go and follow after Christ still? Or are they going to go back to the old way? Are they, are they going to let shame come upon them? And are they going to embrace the shame? So it's a great, uh, great temptation for them. And we need to ask, why, why would it be such a great temptation for them? Why would it be such a temptation to hear the shame if they just know the truth, right? Sometimes we think like that. Well, why on earth would anyone ever do such a thing? Don't they, didn't they know the truth? Brethren, yes, they knew the truth. And so do you. And this can happen. And brethren, the reason the temptation could be so great is because when sin and shame sprout up, it's because they grow in a soil of doubt. The reason the temptation can be so strong for shame to arise and have its way with you, guilt to arise and have its way with you, sin to arise and have its way with you is because, brethren, you begin to doubt things. You look around and you're like, things are not... I mean, maybe it's just external. Man, everything around me is going bad. I've lost my job. Uh, my, my, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm losing all my respectability and my job anymore and amongst my community just whatever you're looking at your externals but brethren sometimes you look at it like this too and you think I'm not the way I should be 
As that, that probably struck you more as a Christian in America. I mean, most of you have not been, have your houses pillaged and plundered and you've lost family members. And I'm not trying to make light of any of that. I'm just looking at our context, brethren. Most of us, that doesn't happen. But you know what does happen to us all the time here in America? We go, why am I not the way that I should be as a Christian? And you begin to doubt. Little, little, little soil of doubt just getting, just, just getting patted down right there. And then these seeds come. The, these seeds get thrown. The, uh, of this shame. Man, you're not what you ought to be. Look at you now. Falling right back into sin. More seeds thrown. More seeds thrown. And you're starting to look around. You're not what you seem. You start doubting. You're ashamed of where you are, what you are. And shame, brethren, begins to take hold of you. It sprouts in that soil. And brethren, you know what it always grows up into every single time if it is not rooted out? Unbelief. Brethren, these people are dealing with nothing less than turning away from the living God. Because unbelief is the end road of that. And brethren, this is very easy to see and think why then somebody would even walk away. Outside of shame and mockery, persecution, hostility, right? You, you can think these can, brethren, these can, and these things have been the factors for why people have ended up leaving. There is outside shame and mockery. There is persecution and hostility that come in, brethren, and it uproots them. And they begin to believe the things that they hear. They begin to embrace the shame. They begin to let it creep in, and they let it ruin them. But brethren, listen. We know that can happen from the outside. And listen, we, when we pray for all these other places around the world, we think of places like Myanmar, <laughs> What, what a place we could probably think of that might be even worse than the Hebrews context of a place where you would go, I don't know if it's even good to be a Christian anymore. I mean, people are literally dying in our streets every day. Where is God? So I know that's the case. I know that can happen. I know outside things, persecution, hostility, the like, is all there. But the one that we need to dial on in our application here is this, brother, listen. In our context today, the warning will jump back and forth as you read here in Hebrews between outside persecution and sin. I mean, you read those first few verses. It says, since we're surrounded by these great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay every, aside every weight and sin, right? So here we go, which clings so closely. Let us run the race with endurance, the race that's set before us. And then how are we to run the race? Well, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Brethren, he's telling you how you ought to run how you ought to endure, how you ought to throw off weight and sin. And he tells you, well, look to Jesus. He despised the shame. He's jumping back and forth between the two. These things are, are, are not disconnected. Yeah, you can receive outside persecution and hostility, but you know what often happens at the same time and what often happens more in our context, brethren? We may not have the outside external hostility to the gospel, but brethren, we would do well to think about this. Our persecutor is, is, is nothing other than sin. We can personify sin. Sin comes like a great worker of persecution and hostility towards you and he is a mocker and one who resists Christians which is why Paul or I said Paul my uh, tip my hat a million times on Hebrews whatever the author of Hebrews 
Which is why the author of Hebrews right here can talk about laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and then tell you, look to Jesus, He despised the shame. His brethren, listen, this is how it happens for us. Here is the sinisterness of this. Sin creeps up like a persecutor, like someone who is hostile towards you. And sin and shame, brethren, they want to gain a foothold in your life. And listen, this is what happens. Have any, has anyone sinned in here as a Christian? Okay, I mean, not to raise your hands, but amen. I'm glad you're honest, right? Uh, yes, we've all sinned in here. So you know, when Christians sin, brethren, even worse, sinning high-handedly as a Christian. Sinning high-handedly as a Christian when you, when you know full well in your mind before you do the deed or you do the act or you say the word or even before you process the thought out, you know what I'm about to think, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do is sin against the living God. Brethren, when Christians sin high-handedly like this and they know full well what they are about to do, that sin produces what? Shame. Here comes the persecution and the hostility from sin. It has you to believe the lie that what you are about to do is better than what you have in Jesus Christ. And then all it gives you is shame. Brethren, have you ever sinned it high-handedly in the minute that you did it? All you were doing was wallowing in shame and pity. And you, were, you felt like you were up to your neck in it. Unable to move, unable to do anything. Brethren, it's like you're drowning. It's like you're being suffocated. You're sitting there and you're just, I want to pull away. I don't want to be around anybody. My sin is before. It's like, what, it's like how David describes my sins ever before me. What am I to do? And brethren, that's because shame has just entered in. And this shame, brethren, you know what it does? It comes in like a great judge and persecutor and it accuses you. And it points its ugly finger at you and it shames you and it says, you sinned. What you did was shameful. Don't you feel the shame? Don't you feel it? And brethren, here again, shame comes in and it shames you. The shame that you produced from your sin comes in and shames you all the more. But brethren, the shame also seeks to then do something else to you too. Shame likes to leave you there feeling miserable for a long time. And then it comes and it wants to lie to you. It wants to come in and lie to you and tell you, you know what? Don't consider Christ. Yeah, yeah, don't consider Him, right? It comes in and wants to lie to you. It's going to try to provide you a way out. There's going to be a cost involved. And it's going to try to provide you a way out. It's going to tell you, don't consider Christ. If you're going to consider Christ, that's a shameful thing. Think about it. You'll be exposed. You go to Christ and you go to your brethren and you confess sin. Oh, no, no, no. You'll be exposed. What a shameful thing. Be exposed for your sin. You'll look bad in front of all the men in the church. Think about your wife. She'll think so little of you. Your kids, what are they going to think of their dad or their mom? Maybe you'll get fired from work. I mean, brethren, those are real things. Tell me they're not. Tell me you haven't sinned high-handedly and thought, I'm not going to tell a soul. And you know why? Because you believed the lie that shame just brought to your ear. It said, that's, that'll bring you shame, man. Don't do it. That'll bring you shame. Don't tell your husband. That's a shameful thing that you're going to have to do, brethren. It comes in, and it is utterly deceitful. Utterly deceitful. It's going to say, that Christ is not 
worthy of you to confess your sin. Not worthy of you. It's going to seek, brethren, to twist and distort you into thinking that someone running to Christ to throw off the shame of their sin. Right? Isn't that what we do? Then we read that at the end of Hebrews. You're to, you're, to, you're to straighten up your past so what can be had? Healing. We know that to be the case, brethren. And sin and shame come in and say, you won't find it. Don't go to Christ to throw off the shame. Don't go to your brothers. Don't confess sin. That would be a shameful thing to do. So what's it going to offer you, brethren? I'll tell you what it's going to offer you. It's going to give you a counterfeit. And you need to think of these early Christians. You think of their counterfeit, and then I'm going to allegorize this a little bit. Just okay, it'll work. It'll be biblical too. You think of those early Christians. Put, put yourself in their shoes again, brethren. You've been a Jew your whole life. You look down on Gentiles. And literally for thousands of years, your people have been in a state of up and down, up and down, up and down. And now you're waiting for a Messiah. And you think he's come. And there he is. He looks like a common criminal, a shameful man, up there hanging on a cross. Now all the old family's coming back around. And they're like, hey, that temple over there, that's still standing. Where's your Messiah? Thought he was dead. Thought he was over in the tomb. Where's his sacrifice for sin? You see that? That smoke rising up daily? We always got sacrifices for sin. We got a way to be made right with our God. Where's that high priest who said, who alone can forgive sins but God? Where is he at? We have our high priesthood offering those sacrifices daily in the temple. Brethren, they have the smell, then the smells and the bells start coming their way. They can hear the Levitical priests singing. They can, they can smell the incense burning. They can taste everything. And then they think, and I was way more respectable as a Jew when I was back in that. Way more respectable. I didn't lose my house when I was a Jew. In fact, we even have a little bit of sway with the Romans. They, they even don't want to mess with us. We got a little respect. And then they think, why would you go to that miserable and failed Jewish rebel cursed by God and hung on a tree? Even look at his followers. They're miserable, peasant, poor, disgraceful people. And look at them. They're persecuted for this man who's dead. And they suffer for this Messiah. Why don't you come on over here? There's cover over here. Brethren, that's the lie that shame will offer you if you don't want to run to Christ. It will put up whatever lie you have to believe to think, if I go to Christ, it would be a shameful thing for me to do. I'll be exposed. It'll be a shameful thing. My reputation will be gone. My, everything's going to be gone if I do that. Brethren, but we know this. To return there or to return to anything that shame lies to you about is to go back to nothing. And in fact, it's not to go back to nothing. You know what awaited the temple and what awaits the lie of shame? Fiery judgment, brethren. You've got to think that in your mind. What's going to await the lie that I'm willing to believe rather than running to Christ? 
What lie am I willing to believe that it's just all going to be okay? Brethren, they had no more sacrifice for sin if they turned. No sin dealt with. No shame removed. And brethren, the same thing. No sin to be removed. No shame to be dealt with. No healing to be had. Only a facade. Only appearance. And the temptation has not changed for us. It hasn't changed for the Christian. Brethren, when sin happens and that wave of shame comes over, seeks to wash over you like a flood... Do not think the hiding place is somewhere else than running to Jesus. Because that is what the Hebrews were being tempted with. He says in 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, brother, what happens when you grow weary and faint-hearted? You don't run to Christ anymore. And your struggle against sin, instead of resisting, you won't resist anymore. And brethren, to not resist, to not deal with the battle of sin, you think, but my life will be so much better. And then God tells you, do you not remember that the discipline that you're going through with your sin is because you're a son? Brethren, we need to consider this. If we run to anything else, we are calling ourselves illegitimate sons. We're calling God a liar, and we're calling Jesus an open mocker of His people. But the question is, how do you know you're running away from Jesus? Like, how do I know? How, how do I know then, okay, I want to run this race well. I don't want let sin and shame creep in and plant seeds and then sprout up into unbelief. So how do I know I'm running away from Jesus, brethren? You are running away from exposure from your sin. You're running away from being exposed and thinking the gospel that covered all shame won't cover it this time. You think it'd be better to hide it, to conceal it, to keep it silent, to paint a facade, to, to give a different reality, than rather confess, and as the Bible says, be forgiven and be healed. You think, I'll just keep on going to church, right? I'll do my own church smells and bells. I may not have the sacrifices, but man, I got the psalms we get to sing. I got the prayers where I can vocalize. I can meet with the brethren. I can be around from the meals. I can put on a face. I can repeat the words. I can wear the mask of respectability in church. And then, brethren, you're just wallowing in shame the whole time. Brethren, shame will make you think that the, that, that kind of game will actually cover your shame. That it'll just it'll go away eventually, and it won't. It will simply have you walking further and further away from Christ, the one who puts sin and shame away. And brethren, it is more than that, though. Listen, when this happens, when the drift starts, what we are saying and what we are believing in that moment is that it is shameful to be exposed by God because we don't think He has anything better to offer us after but brethren, listen, this is why this gospel, right? This is why you need the gospel logic in your life. When you sin, especially when you openly, high-handedly sin, you have got to run to this truth alone. You have got to know that for the Christian, shame does not operate the same way anymore. It can't. It says that Jesus took it and He nailed it and then He, he put it to open shame. 
Your shame is now up on the cross being laughed at by God and His Son in the heavenly host because it's been put there. And church, you have to remember that as you walk, you're to laugh at that thing now. Put that thing to open shame. Despise the shame. Because we don't relate to it anymore. But brother, listen, shame, it, 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 it can draw out sin, and it's good. Shame ought to draw out our sin. But that shame should hold no power over you if you look to Christ who is set before you. Brethren, this is why when you run the race, what you don't put before you is your own perfection. What you don't put before you is maintaining a good name in the church or respectability on some surface level, facade level. What you put before you is Christ to testify to the gospel of grace. Brethren, what better testimony you could have to say what I did was shameful, but I'm not shamed. What better testimony? Someone to come up here. It was, like the, it was like this man that we saw in San Antonio. This young man, married, was in the church, not a Christian, got up before the church and said, I need to get baptized because I was doing shameful things, but now I have no more shame. Brethren, he's not shamed. Though conviction came and shame came, the, the, the Lord of, of the universe did not shame him and the church did not shame him. And brethren, it's because he believed the promise. If I set my path straight, it'll be healing for me. There will be healing. If you set Christ before you, brethren, for your life to be a testimony to the gospel, there will never be shame, even though you sin and confess it. There will never be doubt and wallow to just sit in all day long with no relief. Because, brethren, who can charge you? Who's going to go take it down from the cross? Nobody. Who can shame you, men? Who can shame you? Are you worried about the man on the street going, yeah, come get some art in here. The Bible's lame. He's been put to open shame, brethren. Who's going to shame you? Is sin going to shame you, brethren? It can't anymore. It's been nailed. And brethren, it is no shame to confess and to be forgiven and to be healed. Never a shame. And church, listen, let us never ever become a place where we shame a sinner who is open and contrite in heart and trusting in Jesus Christ. May this be not only a house of prayer, but a house of healing where people come in and are healed by the gospel that is to hold up Christ as the joy set before them and say, I want that. Now I'm willing to give everything up. I'm willing to expose all of my deeds. Christ is my end. He's my goal. He's my life. Brethren, when we hide behind a different Savior, we're saying Christ Himself is shameful. And that coming to Him is a disgrace. Church, remember, Christ bore your shame. How could He ever be one who would be one that you do not want to come to? The one who bore the spitting and the reviling and the shame that you deserved. Brethren, there is never and will be no shame in coming to Him, confessing to Him, being discipled and disciplined by Him. The only pronouncement you will ever be heard in being disciplined by God is, that is my son. That's the only pronouncement anymore. That's my son, and I love him. And that's why I discipline him. So church, shame, shame. When you sin, shame it. Run to Christ. Put it to open shame. And then, brethren, when the, when the lies come and they say, you're not as good as you should be. You're right, I'm not. But he nailed it. 
Put it to shame, brethren. Put that stuff to shame. When you fall into sin, shame it. And you come under Christ in discipline. You come and you confess to your brethren. You be healed. Brethren, expose yourself and realize that the first time ever in your life, you can be exposed and yet clothed. Brethren, it has been put away. All that awaits you. All that awaits you. Listen, all that awaits you, if you would confess, is Christ. There's no trick. There's no trap door. Only one thing awaits you. I open up the door, I confess, there He is. Every time. Who's knocking at the door if I would just confess? It's Christ. Brethren, He's right there. That's who you have. So let's close with these words at the end of Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 13. Brethren, listen. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out to joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray.